well, well, well. Welcome back to the podcast for Applied Theology. This is our fourth episode now, the Messianic Psalms. So far, we have started at the beginning, and we've been walking our way through the scriptures to see how the Bible develops this theme of the Messiah, the coming king. And last week, we talked about the Davidic king and looked at the Davidic covenant, um, uh, some of the things that God has given his uh, people so that they would uh, be oriented underneath uh, a monarchy um, that was aimed uh, to the glory of God, the expansion of his kingdom, uh, a monarch who would be after God's own heart. Um, But the Old Testament doesn't stop there because we have the Psalms. And the Psalms, uh, unique in literature, they're to be sung. And these are, uh, this is the people's uh, hymnal. And these Psalms are just flooded with uh, Messianic themes. And there are several Psalms which we actually call the Messianic Psalms. And uh, before we look at a few of them, we have four uh, to chat about today. Uh, I just wanted to kind of preface by saying that we didn't just decide which Psalms are Messianic and which ones aren't. There are a lot of people who will approach the Bible and they'll say, oh, this right here is prophecy. And where did they learn that? They decided themselves that this right here must be prophecy. This right here must refer to the future. And they decided that themselves. Well, we didn't come to the Psalms and say, oh, this Psalm is a Messianic Psalm. This Psalm is not. No, we approach the Bible unassumingly. Uh, we go to God's word and we first say, teach me how to read you. You tell me which is prophecy and which is uh, not. Uh, you tell me which is typology and which is allegory, which is uh, historical narrative, which is etc. And so when we go to uh, the Psalms and we're trying to decide, all right, now which ones are the psalmists talking about the Messiah to come? Because mo- most of them are talking about the Davidic king, right? But some of them are referring to the final Davidic king, the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, uh, seed of David. And so how do we know? Well, we go to the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament uses the Old Testament very thoroughly. And the New Testament authors, whenever they use the Old Testament, they are necessarily interpreting it for us. And so the joy and the beauty of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament is that not only do you have an inerrant word, now you have an inerrant interpretation of an inerrant word. The New Testament authors, guided by the Holy Spirit in their interpretation of the Old Testament and the Psalms that they use to describe what Jesus has come to do. They say the, this, this passage, this Psalm has been fulfilled in this part of the work of Christ. They are identifying, the New Testament authors are identifying for us which Psalms are messianic. And so this is why we've chosen the Psalms that we've chosen to unpack. And we're going to look both at the Psalm and how the New Testament uses it so that that you know, and hopefully we'll model for you, our viewers and listeners, how to follow the Bible's lead 
when the biblical authors interpret scripture, we're going to follow suit. And if we come to an interpretation that's different from the New Testament author's interpretation, uh, we're wrong. Well. <laughs> Just plain and simple. <laughs> yeah. no, no other way about it. So, Chaz, get us started uh, with a, one of the first Psalms. Tell us about it. Yep. Psalm yeah, 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. What's interesting is Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the first book of the five books of the Psalms, but also of the whole Psalter. Psalm 1 introduces this theme that the man who meditates on the word of God is the blessed man. That the follower of God should be meditating on his word day and night. And blessing comes to him through that. And then, so that theme is introduced in Psalm 1. And then in Psalm 2, there's another theme introduced. And you, you started on that. That God, and this is from last week talking about the Davidic covenant, God is going to have a king. He's going to have an anointed one, his anointed king that he protects his people with. And that's right there. That's introduced in Psalm 2 and flows through the rest of the Psalter. So maybe just like a summary, I think would be helpful of Psalm 2. He begins with the questions, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's because the kings of the earth Little kings that are supposed to be little kings under the true king of the universe, they have sinfully began to turn away from, from God and to, to take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, right? And that anointed is Messiah in the New Testament, Christ. So these rulers are taking their stand against him, trying to burst the, the bonds that God has put on them away from them and take off all the authority, all the, the authority that God has over them. They're just trying to throw it off. We just want to do our own thing. And David here says that God sits in the heavens and just laughs at them because what a pathetic way to do, uh, what a pathetic try to overthrow God. There's no sense in doing that. You're telling me God is not threatened? By man, yeah, God is not threatened by a Joe Biden who, who rails against the Lord. Now, why is that? Because God has set His King on Zion, and that that King, right? Like, and this is David writing this. We see because that's what the apostles say in Acts four, which we'll get to in a second. But, um, man, David is saying God has promised He's going to have His King forever, and we can rest in that. These kings have nothing on God because God has his king. Uh, and and there's, a, there's an important thing there. God is the king of the universe and has an anointed king that he has set up, right? So there's two, there's two there. And because um, God's people can rest in him and, and in his protection through his anointed king, and the kings of the earth should kiss the sun, should serve the Lord with reverential awe, lest he be angry and they perish in the way, right? But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So like, like TJ said, this psalm is just straight up quoted a couple times in the New Testament. Um, and the first that I want to look at is Acts 4. And you'll remember Acts 3 
uh, John and Peter have uh, healed the lame beggar. And they don't, uh, the, the religious authorities, they're not a fan of this. They're not a fan of these guys going around healing people in the name of Jesus. So they call them to them and tell them, hey, stop preaching Jesus, right? And here's, and they don't, right? They, they're like, whatever. You can tell us, but you judge for yourselves. Should we obey men or should we obey God? And what they're saying is, you're telling us to disobey God by your decree, and we're not going to do it. And so I just want to pick up Acts 4.23. When they were released, they, Peter and John, went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, all the brothers, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And this, is them, this is the quotation of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, his anointed. So, so they take Psalm 2 here and they see what has just happened to them as that happening, as Psalm 2 happening the rulers and the kings of the earth setting themselves against God and his anointed one because they're saying, quit preaching about God's anointed one. And they take Psalm 2 that, hey, you might tell me to do that, but God's anointed king is the one who has the authority and we're going to disobey what you just told us. Sorry about it. Sorry, not sorry. Right. Really. (laughs) Well, this, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. When God says, I'm going to put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman between your seed and her seed. There's always been a side that's been aligned with the serpent, aligned against the Lord and his anointed. And the apostles are seeing this enmity between God and his king and then the rulers of the earth. And they need to heed I think an implication uh, of the apostles there, what they are implying is, you better kiss the son. <laughs> you nailed him to the cross. You better kiss him lest he be angry and crush you. <laughs> yep. And, well, and that's what they're, they're preaching there right before it. And it, yeah. it is just some of the boldest, straightforward preaching, right, that, that this Jesus that God sent, you're the ones who killed him, mm-hmm. right? He's mm-hmm. the king. Yeah. You've been waiting for the king. Why'd you kill him? Yep. You know? And so, so because you're telling us to disobey him, we're going to disobey you, mm-hmm. is what they're saying. Jesus, God's anointed king, is our authority. That's right. Above, above all else. Yep. So you keep going on. It comes up again in Acts. It's quoted again in Acts chapter 13. And this is the apostle Paul. And he's preaching, and he says this in 30, I'll pick up in 32. Paul says, and we bring to you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So God has promised this good news, Genesis 3.15, right? That, well, and he has fulfilled that promise by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
So what Paul's saying is there's a sense that the begetting of Jesus as the son of God, right? In the, the covenant partner sense, that, that term, you are my son, I don't think that means the fact that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, right? This is a covenant partner sonship. Because that's what Psalm 2 is referring to. Psalm 2 is referring to 2 Samuel 7, that right. the Davidic king will be in a father-son relationship. With the Lord. With, with the right. Lord, yes. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so there's a sense, God proved that that is true of Jesus by raising him from the dead, right? And you see the same thing at the, the baptism of Jesus, where, and I mean, I'll read Matthew 4 here. I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 17, right? And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, right? It's the same thing. Jesus's work on the earth is where his covenant sonship with the Lord was like God put a stamp of approval on Christ. He proved it by raising him from the dead is what the apostle is saying there. And so Jesus's resurrection is God's approval of his sonship. It's his stamp of approval. And you actually see this again a couple times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and I'll read these quick because I know we need to get moving. But Hebrews 1.5 says, well, 1.4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Right, like Jesus is being the son of God in that sense proves his superiority over the angels. Like Jesus isn't on the same level as the angels. He's superior because he's God's son. And then Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So it's, it's really cool. The, whoever the author of Hebrews is, sees in, in Psalm 2 that one line, both that Jesus is superior to the angels and superior to the, the human high priests, right? Not that Jesus isn't human. He, he surely is, but the just human high priests, right? Jesus is superior because he has a special covenant sonship with the Lord that they didn't have, right? And then it comes up a couple times in Revelation, um, maybe more as allusions, but I'll just read Revelation 19, 15, as Jesus is coming in, the victorious king riding on the white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the allusion to Psalm 2, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus coming in, riding on a white horse, rules the nations as the Psalm 2 Davidic covenant son of God. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the implication, like you said, kiss the son lest you perish in the way. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's right. And we need Jesus to come and to be that king. Because as we've been talking about, man failed to, uh, to assume that authority that God granted us. We abdicated that. 
and no man has been able to step into that office of king and faithfully live it out and subdue. Mm -hmm. And so God the Son, the eternal God the Son, becomes the Son of God. That is how I describe because that phrase, Son of God, is with respect to the Davidic king, the, this, uh, this one in covenant with Yahweh. God the Son takes on a human nature, enters into this office as king, and his humanity is anointed at the baptism, which we're going to talk, we're going to have episodes all about this, these different parts of the work of Christ, uh, which we're just kind of hitting on uh, from these Psalms, and assumes this office, and the Father puts his stamp of approval on his Davidic king in his That's excellent stuff. And so um, this is the work of Christ kind of beginning here and a little taste of his uh, resurrection in, in Psalm 2 as well. And then uh, we get going. We got Psalm 22 is another uh, messianic psalm. Pastor Josh, tell us about Psalm 22. Yeah, um, so Psalm 22, um, you're really getting into... Um, into the, the prophecy of the, the crucifixion of Christ and got uh, a lot of where we see in the Gospels uh, when it says, you know, that he did this, that the scripture may be fulfilled. A lot of that is, is alluding back uh, to Psalm 22. Um, and, and if anybody that, that's at all familiar with the Gospel accounts, so you read the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, your mind, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to, you know, your mind immediately goes to, to Matthew 27. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And this is while he's hanging on the cross. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a verbatim of, of what uh, Psalm 22 says. And, um, and we, we can just go down through the entire Psalm and just reference after reference of, uh, you know, what, what happened during the crucifixion. Um, verse 6 tells us, but I am a worm, I uh, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Uh, and again, in Matthew 27, we see where they spit upon him, they smote him on the head, they mocked him, you know, treating him like a worm, reproaching him. Um, and then, you know, we see... Um, uh, that he, uh, at the end uh, of uh, Matthew, or um, here in uh, Psalm 22, verse 18, he says, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And we know again, Psalm, uh, Matthew 27, that, um, you know, and after they'd crucif crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots. I mean, um, you know, exactly as, you know, as it was said in the Psalm, um, and, uh, you know, there's just, just so many references there in, in the Psalm that exactly match that, uh, that crucifixion, uh, account in the gospels. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that, that speaks to me in this Psalm, uh, and we're going through the, the Psalms at church right now on Sunday nights and, and talking about how, um, you know, the Psalms appeal to our, our, our emotions, very emotional and, uh, um, you know, how they're, how they're written. And, 
I think you really, reading through this psalm, you, you really see, um, you know, the human nature mm-hmm. of Christ, that he is 100% man uh, and 100% God. You really see that human side of him come out here because I don't know if you guys are like this. When I was growing up and, and you, you read the gospel and the, and the crucifixion account and, uh, you know, I kind of had this idea in my head that, like, well, Christ, he's, he's God, you know. He probably, he probably didn't, like, feel pain. Like, you know, he just, he just went, you know, he, he, he was hung on the cross and all that. And, and, but, you know, he probably wasn't, like, distressed and, and downtrodden and, like, worried or, or, and, and even the physical side of it. Like, he probably didn't feel it. Like, we, you know, there's just something in you that, that, that tries to kind of downplay what he went through. But you read Psalm 22, man, and and you get down to like verses like 14 and 15. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Mm. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Like Mm. he, he went through the, you know, the worst agony any human could ever experience and, and having the sins of the entire world laid upon him um, in addition to the physical pain, mm-hmm. just, just the, the spiritual mental anguish of, of becoming sin. He, he became sin and, and was sacrificed for our sins. Um, and so... To me, that that what really sticks out when when you read down through this, and in addition to the the, the pros, prophecy that we see fulfilled, is just that glimpse into the heart of Christ and what He experienced uh, in in the crucifixion. Oh, right. And I uh, I heard from Donald Whitney, and it might actually be in his uh, book, uh, Praying the Bible. He makes a case from this text to pray the Psalms because this is what Christ on the cross in the midst of anguish when the Father is rejecting him, he goes to the Psalms and prays the Psalms to his Father. And uh, what a model for us. Yeah. Pastor Dudley, Psalm 110. Well, Psalm 110 is, is fantastic. You know, Luther called it the crown of the Psalms. And he even said that it should be adorned with jewels. So beautiful. I think Augustine said it's uh, the treasury of holy writ is the way he described. Matthew Henry described uh, Psalm 110 as, the, as uh, David's creed and noted that most of uh, the major doctrines of Scripture are incorporated in this psalm. And, of course, as Pastor TJ said, we begin in the New Testament. We're looking at it, we're reading, but we begin in the New Testament. And we begin with the, the author of the book himself, Jesus, as he uh, quotes this psalm in response to the Pharisees who are uh, quizzing him. And he says in uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, and this is recounted in all three of the synoptic gospels. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from this day on to ask him another question. And so Jesus uses the verse to silence his critics, but also he really uses the verse to identify who he is. This mystery, this, this verse, this psalm, you know, many of the psalms, you can find them in local context and you can figure, well, this is maybe doing, dealing with the coronation of David when he takes over Jerusalem. But really, it's, you, you don't find that. You, you're, when you read it and you study it, there are things in this psalm that don't apply to any king other than Jesus Christ. And we see that in this first verse, and then Paul, uh, Peter uses the same thing in Acts chapter uh, 2 when he gives his great sermon there on the day of Pentecost, and it, when he culminates this sermon by bringing uh, the essence of who Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is not just the Christ, he's not just the Messiah, he's not just the Son of David, but Jesus is the Lord, the Lord that... Uh, David refers to in this Psalm 110, and this is in uh, verse 34 of, or really, I guess we could go to verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then the response of the people is that their hearts were pierced and they began to cry out, brethren, what shall we do? We have crucified not just the Christ, but we have crucified the Lord himself. And that is a shocking thing. And this uh, Psalm 110, of course, incorporates the idea of the incarnation, the idea of the, tr the concept of the Trinity. It talks about the ascension of Christ. It talks about the current position of Christ, the fact that Christ is our intercessor sitting at God's right hand. And we see this uh, Psalm 110 quoted repeatedly throughout the epistles. Not only is it quoted in the three synoptic gospels, but we see it's quoted in Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians. Peter quotes it. The, book, the author of the book of Revelation quotes it. And then the next big group of quotations is in uh, the book of Hebrews, because not only in this uh, psalm is Jesus introduced as being the Messiah, but more so than that, being introduced as God himself, the second person of the Trinity. But we see that Jesus has a role that no other king has had, and that's in verse 4, where it says, the Lord has, verse 4 of, of Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is not only the king, the great king, but he is also the priest. Not just a priest, he is the priest. And he is after the order of Melchizedek. No other king was a priest. In fact, when Uzzah tried to enter into the role of the priest, what would happen? He was struck with leprosy. God was saying, no, not for you. 
not for any king. There's only one king that has the right to enter in as priest, and that is the one who will give himself as a sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And we see that in the book of Hebrews. So, yes, this Psalm 110 incorporates all of these uh, ideas, great ideas that are filled, the New Testament is filled with them, and we are introduced to the one, the only uh, priest and king, Jesus Christ. And how important that text is, because that, out of all of the passages of the Old Testament, that one is the most used in the New Testament. And what, a, what a treasure. Uh, I love those quotes that you, uh, you led with. Uh, a final psalm uh, to talk about, and uh, it it covers a couple parts of the work of Christ that we haven't. We've covered the whole gambit um, except for uh, Christ's descent and resurrection. We did touch on his resurrection with Psalm 2 a bit. But uh, Psalm 16 and verse 10 uh, is, a, is a really crucial text for, again, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And uh, he unpacks it a little bit as he's preaching and, and explaining to the Jews uh, everything that had just taken place, not just uh, what they're witnessing at Pentecost, but why Pentecost is happening, and that the Messiah has come. And he walks through a survey of the Old Testament. And he says, now this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah, right? It's in the context of this sermon uh, that uh, he then quotes uh, in verse 25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken for my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. And, and here's Psalm 16 verse 10. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You've revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. And then Peter goes on to say, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's the same thing. Like, David is not speaking about himself. Right. Like when, uh, in Psalm 110, and David, or when Jesus says, who's David talking about? Right. Because David says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. We've got three right. people here. The, the author right. and Yahweh, Yahweh, and then David's Lord. David's Lord. And Jesus is like, who's David's Lord, mm-hmm. right? And he's saying, that's me, right? right. And, and Peter's making the same case, but based on the fact that, hey, obviously this, this text, David is speaking as a prophet. He says, though, uh, that since he was a prophet, in verse 30, David is speaking as a prophet about Jesus because David, his body is still in a tomb. Verse 30, since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. David knew this because God entered into covenant with David and promised that very thing. That's why David can write Psalm 16, 10 like he does. Seeing what was to come, He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And then he quotes it again. He was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. Now, this is very uh, critical in understanding the doctrine of Christ's descent. We have seen 
so far in the Psalms, uh, they talk about the anointing, the spirit anointing of Jesus as the Messiah for his messianic work um, and his crucifixion and his death. And uh, after his death, Jesus tells Martha when he's resurrected, he says, I've yet to ascend to my father and your father. Jesus didn't ascend to the father immediately after his death. Rather, he went into Sheol, Hades. And the text here says, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Abandonment isn't implying that, uh, that the Father will not abandon his Son does not mean that the Father will not uh, have his Son go into Hades. Rather, his Son will go into Hades, but he will not be left there. Right? Everyone who died before the resurrection, their body went into the grave, and their soul went into the realm of the dead. Just as Peter says, he was not abandoned in Hades. His spirit and his flesh did not experience decay because his soul was liberated from Hades and his body was resurrected. And so this passage, one of the many which speaks of Christ's descent into Hades, Sheol, the realm of the dead to liberate the Old Testament faithful, and to break the chains of, of death and Hades. Uh, this passage is covering both Christ's descent and resurrection, and then we have his ascension, Psalm 110, Yahweh saying to his son, now that his work is accomplished and complete and death and Hades are defeated, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Another doctrine we don't talk about is Christ's session, his enthronement, and what he's doing enthroned. So often I've heard people preach about the enthronement of Christ and say, the text says that, that the son sat down at the right hand of the father. And, and the implication the app, or the application that some preachers will say, uh, the text doesn't say he's standing, wringing his hands to make the text mean that Christ sitting versus standing is what we need to focus on. That's not what is being communicated. Christ sitting is his enthronement to reign Rain. over right. heaven and earth, all of the cosmos, until he will reign from heaven until all of his enemies are put under right. his feet. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. And back to Psalm 2, we have his return uh, quoted, alluded to in Revelation. So everything we've talked about from just these four Psalms, we've covered the entire work of Christ as Messiah, King, God over all. And right now we're in the midst of his session. He is reigning until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And so we look forward to our reigning, conquering king continue to reign and conquer enemies before our midst. We are witnessing them fall before our very eyes. Roe v. Wade, and we pray and we labor in light of Christ's rule uh, to see more of his enemies conquered. Psalm 2 and, and, and Psalm 1 
We'll talk about application in just a minute. Um, as you were talking, Chaz, uh, about Psalm 1 and 2 uh, going together, they're, they're a couplet that together introduces the whole Psalter. Psalm 1, 1 speaks of the blessed man, right? And the final verse of Psalm 2 said, blessed is he who takes refuge. So Psalm 1 is contrasting the one who listens to the word of the Lord is blessed, who breathes it in, who takes it in, it's his life, uh, versus the fool who doesn't heed the word of the Lord. And then Psalm 2 is talking, is contrasting the one who submits to the Son and the one who's in rebellion against the Son, which tells me that there's an absolute correlation between heeding the word of God and submitting to the Son, rejecting the word of God and rebelling against the Son. You are blessed when you heed the word of God and submit to the Son, kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, for he is Lord and Messiah. What rich theology in the Psalms. Yeah. Now, we can talk about applying the Psalms. What, what do the Psalms tell us? Uh, one thing I'm thinking about is we've got a lot of Christian music, some of which is fantastic, phenomenal. And in the great tradition that the Psalms pave the way for, some of it is not. How do we discern when we want to sing psalm-like? What, what are some principles for our listeners, for us, to, to pick good, uh, theologically rich, uh, Christ-exalting music? I think the first obvious thing is, does it line up with Scripture? Amen. I think a lot of times we put a lot more scrutiny on the pastor's sermon mm. than we will on what we sang right before it. That's good. We, we allow a lot more to get by if it's, if it's right. in song for some reason. It, it just doesn't have We're to be as... artistic license. To yeah. Right. yeah. Well, that doesn't rhyme, so we can, uh, <laughs> right. you know... You can mess with yeah. theology yeah. to make it rhyme. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, I think it's, it's just as, you know... Um, there, there are songs that um, I just won't sing that are common in churches, you know, nowadays that, you know, I, I know I'm going to be lying if I let right. those words yeah. come out of my mouth. And so I'll, I'll be silent, with, you know, if I'm at a church where they're singing that. Um, so I think we need to be sure what we're praising God with is, is first of all, true of what God said of himself in his word. Because there's a sense you learn more from what you sing than what sure you, you hear. Do. For sure you do. Yeah. yeah, and there's no better way to memorize scripture than to sing it. I mean, that's, that's right. the reality of it. And, and, I, and I was blessed, I think, because my mother always loved to sing. And uh, in the kitchen, I can just still hear her singing. And we had all these little choruses uh, that were verbatim and all in King James uh, from Psalms. And so I can still hear her singing them in, in my ears even now. And it's great because that's established. You know, they're so theologically rich, these Psalms, that they're establishing you and giving you a foundation in uh, Christology, really, of who is Jesus Christ. And, you, and, you, and fortunately, we have the New Testament lens to read these psalms as well. And think what a blessing even for the uh, disciples. The, a lot of these psalms, they had grown up singing them. And they had been, they had been accustomed to them. They had heard them maybe their entire lives, and, and the word sort of passed over them. 
Uh, maybe like some of the hymns that we sing, the, the words you don't really appreciate them until you get older and you start reading them when you're a little child. Sometimes the words are catchy, but you don't really know what they mean. But I'm thinking the disciples, think how wonderful for Peter there. To, these are things he's been singing his entire life, and yet now he sees them all being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now he understands them. Now they're clear. And that's the legacy that we have to give to our children. And that's why I appreciate a Grant as our uh, pastor of worship and our worship leader as he is guiding us in our singing on Sunday. Those songs are put through a, a, a thick filter before we uh, put them out there on Sunday morning because that's what we're doing. We're training a new generation and we want them to walk out of the uh, doors of the church singing songs that not only are interesting and good to sing, but that are theologically rich and rooted in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got two and a half year old and we've uh, wanted to put before him a lot of good songs and, and many of them that are just straight scripture. And there's a couple groups that Kayla and I have found, just a recommendation out here. Uh, listener kids, it's a lot of upbeat and, and fun uh, and they've got a lot of song, uh, a lot of scripture set to uh, music. Um, slugs and Bugs, it's a hilarious <laughs> name, but again, fun. But what psalm is that? <laughs> they, they've got quite a few. Quite a few uh, uh, that that's they, what John the Baptist ate, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's what he listened to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they, they do the same. So there's a lot of uh, scripture lullabies uh, to put AJ to sleep. They uh, you made beautiful. You could last night, brother. I really yeah. could have. I didn't get any sleep. Uh, they... Uh, make uh, beautiful lullabies out of Bible passages, but just starting from very young, the very Word of God going into them, and the Word of God is the power of God, and it, that is what brings life, and and I'm praying that uh, through music that is true to Scripture, that exalts Christ, that this truth is what the, the Spirit will use uh, in, in addition to him hearing teaching and, and discipleship, um, that, that the Spirit will bring him to life. Yep, and one of the things that I've thought of when um, we're thinking about singing songs, you want the music you sing to have the proportions of the themes that the Psalter has. Mm. Yeah. And there's one that we don't have any of, and we don't sing about our enemies. Mm. You're talking about the antithesis, the world versus yeah. us. Yep. It's only growing. Yeah. It's well. It's only getting more intense, I should say. Yeah. And we got to have songs like "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God," that says something to us like, "And though this world with devils filled, we would never even think about calling our enemies devils nowadays." Right. Right. But though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through mm -hmm. us. Amen. Right. Amen. And um, we're going into it. It's just going to get worse for us. And if we're going to do it with joy, and that's how Jesus wants us to do it. Yeah. We got to sing about how we're going to win. Yep. They're going to lose. Yep. He's on our side. Yep. We're going to win. Yeah. And because we don't do that, we're not teaching our people how to relate to enemies. We're, we're evangelicals. Yeah. And it's in our DNA to be the nice, yeah. no enemies people. Yeah. And, I mean, like, that worked for a little while, but that's not going to work anymore. <laughs> when the culture wasn't so antagonistic. 
It's Je Jesus right. said, pray for your enemies. And the problem with most modern evangelicals is that they don't have enemies. Yeah. And so you don't erase the enemies part. There are people aligned against the Messiah and singing the Psalms like this teach us how to understand our relationship to our enemies and informed by the New Testament uh, to then pray for them, but definitely see them uh, as people we can't yoke up with. We can't compromise and, and join. We can't be a turncoat. <laughs> right. Yeah. We need to keep a clear uh, understanding of where the line is. Yep. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. Well, we hope this episode has been an encouragement to you. Until next time, the Lord bless you. Uh, please feel free to put any questions or comments uh, in uh, the comment box wherever you are watching or listening to this. And uh, if you have a question, uh, we'd love to answer it on our next episode. God bless.